So is it possible to suffer successfully? That's a question I want to open with this morning. Is it possible to suffer successfully? For at one level, that question, you know, it sounds a bit like an, an oxymoron, something that is nonsensical. It's like referring to a deeply superficial person, right? Or an honest thief. You know, those words, suffering successfully, we don't think they ought to belong together. Because we typically associate suffering with, with pain or failure. So success is thus the avoidance of such pain and failure. Right, but if you live long enough and if you love hard enough, one of the difficult realities of this life is that we all will suffer. It's inescapable. And now many will try to ignore it. You know, why dwell on the negative? Let's just focus on the positive. Others will pretend like suffering doesn't exist. Still others, they want to sort of redefine suffering. You know, sufferings are, are opportunities in disguise. It's the when life gives you lemons, make lemonade approach to suffering. But the Bible actually will have none of those trite responses. Suffering is real, it is hard, and just seeking to adopt some can-do attitude doesn't change that reality one bit. So back to the question, is it possible to suffer successfully? And to help us answer this, I want us to turn back in our Bibles to the book of First Peter, to the New Testament book of First Peter. And if you're using one of those pew Bibles, you can find it right there on page 1016 of those pew Bibles. And let me just say, if you've been, if you've been coming and visiting and you don't come from a Christian background and, and you don't own a Bible, um, then I want to invite you to take that Bible in the pew there. I don't know if it has the church's name on it. Don't worry about that. Just if you don't own a Bible, but you'd like to be reading more, then I want to encourage you to just take that Bible with you. Walk right out the door. Okay? Use it. Read it. Talk to us about it. Okay? This is the word that brings life. All right. So I want you to, want you to genuinely hear that, that encouragement. But as you turn there, uh, to the book of First Peter. This is our sort of seventh of eight studies as we're going through the book. And if you're just new and joining us, uh, this book was written by the Apostle Peter to a group of Christians, largely Gentiles. They didn't come from a Jewish background, scattered across modern-day Turkey between sort of 60 and 70 A.D. And civic and religious duties were really inseparable within the first century Greco-Roman world. And in becoming Christians, these young new believers well, they could no longer participate in all the festivals to Caesar and the, the plethora of Roman gods. They could no longer worship at those temples. And so in aligning themselves with Christ, what they had done in aligning with Christ is they had alienated themselves from the world. Thus, they were viewed suspiciously. They were viewed even contemptuously by their peers. So feeling without a home in the world, in the opening sort of chapter and a half or so, Peter says, you have a home in heaven, right? An imperishable inheritance awaits. That's really one one through 2.10. And comforted now by what God has done in and through them, Peter now calls these young Christians to live such godly lives in the world that non-Christians might see and be saved. They do that. We saw beginning uh, at the end of chapter 2 into chapter 3 by submitting to authorities and by leaving their old way of life and by loving one another. That really gets us from 2.11 all the way through 4.11. And yet while some will see their good lives and they might be encouraged by that, they might be drawn to the gospel on the basis of such lives, we also know that on the basis of such lives, while some will be drawn, some will be repelled. Some will turn away, and that will bring about persecution and suffering of these Christians. So what does Peter say to those who are suffering for Christ? All right, let's read beginning in chapter 4, in chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Chapter 4, beginning verse 12 through verse 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And that the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, so what does it look like for these Christians to suffer successfully? Do they form political action committees? Do they lobby for acceptance? Do they take out ads in the paper? Do they take up arms in defense? Or do they retreat, you know, form their own little communes out there in the deserts? Well, I think if you're looking for a one-sentence summary of 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, it's this. Joyfully persevere in suffering. Confident God has a purpose in it and the power to defeat it. That's a one-sentence summary. I'll say it again. Joyfully persevere in suffering. Confident God has a purpose in it and the power to defeat it. All right, so Peter doesn't say attack. He doesn't say acculturate. He doesn't say retreat. How do we respond? So what are some of those keys to suffering successfully? Well, first he says, don't be surprised. That's the first thing he says if you're taking notes. Just... Don't be surprised. That's the first point. Verse 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. You know, suffering for Christ shouldn't be a strange experience for a Christian. It shouldn't catch us flat-footed. And now this command not to be surprised, well, if, if you're coming out of a Jewish background, well, that wouldn't be all that surprising because your national heritage is one that was birthed out of suffering. Think of Israel and Egypt and their sufferings in Egypt and, and how God brought them out of Egypt and, and through the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. I mean, that, their, their national identity was wrapped up in suffering and later in exile. Right, but these weren't predominantly Jewish Christians. These were largely Gentile Christians. And these Christians, well, they're, they're accustomed to being part of the moral majority. They're accustomed to acceptance and respect. And now, perhaps for the first time, they're feeling the bitter sting of rejection for the name of Christ. That's why they're feeling that rejection. Notice that's what it says in verse 14, for the name of Christ. Their trial is not because they looked different or talked different or because they acted criminally. No, it's simply because, as he's exhorted the two earlier, they left their old way of life, they've begun to love one another, and thus they've drawn upon themselves as they've left that old way of life, the ire of the world. Now, it used to be that if you wanted to get ahead in public life, you know, Christianity could help you. It would sort of grease the skids, so to speak. So before becoming president, I don't know if you know, James Garfield was a preacher. And when he left his pulpit, he said, I resign the highest office in the land to become president of the United States. You know, Carter was a Sunday school teacher. His secret service code name was the deacon. That was a secret service code name. Both Bushes and Reagan and Clinton, whether it was due to their personal beliefs or to societal pressures, were all members of historically Christian denominations. Now, if we just think about our current president, he's not regularly at... Uh, a worship gathering on Sunday morning, he's not a member of a local church. And I don't say that to make a value judgment upon him. I merely say it to make an observation. My point is simply to highlight that nobody really seems to care. Nobody really seems to care. There's no scandalous chatter over the fact that President Obama and his wife Michelle are not in church services on Sunday. Now, when Eisenhower took office, that was scandalous. So he didn't have a church home. He took office within the first two weeks. All right? Within the first two weeks to avoid the opprobrium of having no Christian affiliation. He was promptly baptized into the Presbyterian church. 
And I just bring this up simply to note that being a Christian, it's no longer societally advantageous. It's not necessary. If anything, becoming a Christian, bearing that label, that's actually becoming a liability. It's becoming a liability. You know, whether or not you're a baker in Oregon or a wedding photographer in New Mexico or a county clerk in Kentucky, right? All practical examples of those who feel well and feel acutely the liability of following Christ, a liability these first century Christians knew themselves. Do you feel that? In your own life, do you feel the liability of living for Christ? Now, most of us won't feel that on the national stage, as some of those examples I just noted a moment ago. But we will feel them on the individual stages of our everyday lives, right? In the classroom, in the locker room, around the Thanksgiving table. Do you feel that liability of living for Christ? Peter assumes these Christians were feeling it. So where do you, where do you feel it? And maybe more to the point, what does it reveal about your witness if there is no liability in your living? What might it reveal about your Christian witness if there is no liability in your own living? For the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. The message of the gospel isn't that this is sort of an I'm okay, you're okay world. Jesus didn't arrive on the scene and come and say, hey, great work, y'all. You guys have done an amazing job. You've done superbly with the world. I'm here to congratulate you, give you a high five, offer a Nobel Prize. You know, that's not the message Jesus came. He didn't come to congratulate us in the Gospels. In the Gospels, Jesus came to confront us. The very words, his first words recorded in Mark are repent. Repent. The gospel says we're not okay. More than that, spiritually speaking, the gospel says all of us are he, all of us here, spiritually speaking, we're jihadists. Spiritually speaking, we're all jihadists. Every sin that we commit, every one, a suicide mission, bringing about spiritual death, death to ourselves, bringing about harm, bringing about suffering to others, Brothers and sisters, that's where the gospel begins. It's why Peter said back in 2.8 that Jesus is what? He's a rock of offense. He's a rock of offense. It's why Paul says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing in 118, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Right? The gospel is laughable. It's mockable. It's ridiculous. The gospel has edges. It has sharp edges. It's about blood and death and wrath, and sin, and anger, and greed. You can shave off those edges, and yes, you may no longer feel the liability of living for Christ, because you've lost Christ, because you've lost Him. The gospel is offensive, which means sometimes, as we share it and as we live it out, we will be perceived as being offensive also. We will be seen as strange, right? As out of step with the world. So why are we surprised when it happens? He's saying, don't be surprised. I think it catches us off guard sometimes. Why are we surprised? Maybe it's because you were sold a false religion. You know, Christianity, you know, sort of as the religion of, religion of self-help and, and personal fulfillment. Jesus as the means to becoming a better you. Just to take the title of a, of a Christian self-help book. But, you know, maybe it's because you know the book of Revelation. You know the final score. You know, in the, in the Bible, we're not sitting on the edge of our seats waiting and wondering if that line of scrimmage is going to keep all the opposing players behind it, if they're going to be able to kick the football through the uprights. You know, we're not wondering hanging upon our seats at that last moment. We know the story of the Bible. We know that God wins, that victory doesn't hang in the balance. We know the message of Revelation. But we ask ourselves, then, why does it feel like I'm always losing, always taking the hits, always the butt end of the joke? Why does it feel like that? 
but we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus prepared us for this. Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more, how much more will they malign those of his household? That's what Jesus said, or Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone, not just some, not just a few, not just the really serious Christians, but everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, that's what our brothers and sisters have been experiencing around the globe for decades. And I think Augustine put it well. He said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. And if we're not prepared, if we're not expecting, then the shock of suffering can lead to confusion or despair. Whereas Peter's actually saying such suffering should provoke joy. It should cause us to rejoice. Verse 13, we're not to be surprised, but to rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, we don't rejoice in our sufferings as if we're some, you know, masochists and we just like pain. And nor is Peter saying here, he's not saying, you know, we're to rejoice in our suffering because suffering builds character, though that's true, or because suffering grows us in compassion for others, though that's true. Or because it provides an example for others as we walk through suffering. Though that is true as well. But that's that's not why Peter says we rejoice. There are all secondary reasons. We rejoice insofar as we participate, he says, in the sufferings of Christ. So when we suffer because of our allegiance to Christ, we reveal first and foremost that we're united to him. His name is more important than our own names. We willingly lay down our own reputation because we're willing to take up his. When we suffer in those ways, large or small, Peter says we're to rejoice now because those sufferings, those sufferings reveal that a greater joy awaits us. He said when his glory is revealed... In verse 13, end of verse 13. And elsewhere, when Peter has used that word revealed throughout his book, he's referring, he's referring to Christ's future coming back in chapter 1 verse 7 or chapter uh, 1 verse 13. Peter's saying rejoice, rejoice because your present participation in suffering is what is securing your future participation in joy. That's what he's saying. Rejoice because your present participation in suffering is what secures your future participation in joy. So we're to be confident of God's care, not in spite of our sufferings, but because of our sufferings. And if that sounds familiar to you, it should, because that's exactly what he said back in chapter one, verses seven and eight. Trials, if you remember, what do trials reveal? Well, they reveal that we're on the path of salvation. Trials are those markers along the way that encourage us and and say to us, hey, listen, you haven't wandered off the path. You're still on the path. Those trials, those markers, those sort of dots of paint, those trail markers to us, we're still following the right path, which is why how you respond to suffering for Christ is one of the surest signs if you belong to Christ at all. How you respond to suffering for Christ is one of the surest signs of whether or not you belong to Christ at all. Now, we suffer successfully. He's saying not by being surprised, but by rejoicing, confident that our participation in Christ's sufferings are achieving for us as Paul will say, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. But he doesn't just say not to be surprised, does he? He says something else. Secondly, he says, don't be ashamed. That's the second thing I want you to note. He also says, don't be ashamed. Look down there at verses 14 and 16. We read, if you are insulted for the name of Christ... 
you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 14 is just another verbal clue to us that the kind of sufferings these Christians experienced, they were, they were verbal, right? More than physical, right? They're being insulted, he says. And verse 15 makes clear that they're not to suffer for doing wrong, right? He said that back in chapter 2, verse 20. He said it in 317. So not as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't suffer for those reasons. Right? And Peter just, Peter's not speaking hyperbolically there. You know, he's not using hyperbole. At times, I think we can over-romanticize, you know, the early church. Um, we think of them sometimes as sort of the spiritual special forces, like the, the super, super godly ones. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 6, 9? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. None of those folks will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. The early church was a bunch of misfits, right? Men and women that made up lists of those kinds of of vices, those kinds of struggles. And yet they accomplished amazing things because God delights when the foolish things of the world shame the wise and when the weak things of the world shame the strong. He gets most glory in such situations. So if you've come through these doors this morning and you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian... Right. I don't want in any way the sort of cleanliness of this place or any pressed clothes to, confu- uh, to uh, confuse you. We are all, every one of us, every one of us, to the core, we are filthy people. And the message of Christianity isn't just get some brush, get a brush and some bleach, rather, and try to sort of wash yourself up, make yourself all nice and good and pretty, and then once you've done that, God will accept you. The message of Christianity is that God himself is going to clothe us with his garments of salvation. He gives us what we do not have, what we do not possess, when we turn from our sin and when we look to him. Right there on the cross, Christ hung naked so that we would never have to be naked and exposed before God. And when we trust in his death alone as the punishment for our own sins, we gloriously become arrayed with Christ's robes of righteousness. That's what we get in response. When we shed our clothing, when we walk away from it all, from our filthy rags, and we turn and we trust in Christ and look to him, his robes of righteousness, his perfect righteous life that none of us ever have lived, that's what we are clothed with, with those garments of salvation. You see, I just want you to know if you are not a Christian, the gospel, it's not for clean people. It's for dirty people. It's for a murderer like Paul. It's for people like you and people like me. And notice also that the surrounding of this command not to be ashamed, there's this threefold refrain. We're not to be ashamed for the name of Christ, he says. You know, Christian, that name. You know, the earliest Christians didn't call themselves Christians. I don't know if you realize that. They didn't call themselves Christians. They called themselves disciples in Acts 6. They called themselves saints, Romans 1, brothers, 1 Corinthians 1, those who belong to the way, Acts 9. You know, a Christian, that was an, that was an epithet. That was something coined by outsiders. That was not a term of endearment. That was very much a derogatory term because to the Romans, Right? Jesus was crucified as a criminal of the state. He was a traitor. Right? He was a Benedict Arnold. Just a really, really deluded one. Because this guy actually thought he was the Messiah and the Savior of the world. But in what world of Rome would a poor Jewish preacher from Palestine ever be a threat to Caesar? That was just utterly ridiculous. 
and laughable. So when someone called you a Christian, right, that was, that was derogatory. They were mocking you that you think this crucified person actually had any power to save. And the temptation, of course, was to be ashamed. The temptation for these readers was to be ashamed. But Peter doesn't mean by that word that they merely feel embarrassed and humiliated. They may have felt that, but he's, Jesus often uses that word, and Peter thus will use it ashamed in a more final sense, as those who have forfeited the faith by their ashamed behavior. Mark 8.38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. See, Peter feel, fears, rather, that all the insults, all the accusations are going to lead these young Christians to abandon Christ, to walk away from the faith. Well, I wonder if all of amidst accusations and insults, do you ever feel ashamed? Do you ever feel ashamed? Are you tempted to abandon Christ in those moments that matter most? You know, in 1945, in Russian-occupied Romania, there was a a communist uh, congress that was held to really give praise and to propagate communism. And Richard Wormbrand, who was a former Jewish stockbroker who had become a Christian and become a pastor, he was there with his wife. And during that congress, religious leader after religious leader, just in a long line, they capitulated and they came forward and they swore loyalty to this new communist regime. And while Richard was wondering, because his place in line, he was coming up. When he was, while he was wondering what to do, he knew it would come. He knew he would have to stand and he would have to swear loyalty to communism as he debated what to do, what courage it might take for him, right, to be faithful. His wife, as is often the case with husbands, his wife knew exactly what to do. She boldly said, Richard, stand up and wash away the shame from the face of Christ. All these people, all these clergy professing to be Christians, renouncing him publicly, she said, wash away the shame from the face of Christ. And he said to her, and he warned, if I do so, you will lose your husband. To which she responded, I don't wish to have a coward as a husband. That was one tough woman. No nonsense. And so when Richard's turn came, he rose and he refused to be ashamed as he powerfully called upon thousands of delegates to renounce atheism and glorify God in Christ alone. And if you know his story, he would undergo great sufferings and persecutions as a result of that witness. And though not as public as Richard's every day, right, we're called to make such stands, to not be ashamed It's when you speak up in class or share the gospel at work. You know, you're labeled a a thumper, a Bible thumper, or a fundy, or a, a Flanders. I got that in college a lot, Flanders, if you know The Simpsons. It's when you leave the workforce to care for a growing family. And maybe you're a woman and you're labeled a a sellout, a traitor. It's when your Christian commitments are no longer in accord with the principles of this organization. Perhaps you've heard that one. And there's an implied or else in that. So I have a good friend who works at the EPA. And uh, his boss came in the other day and just looked at him and closed the door and said, Hey, you know, you really, you can't keep your Bible and those Christian books you're reading. You really can't keep those on your desk. And he said, Well, I, I can't even keep the Bible on my desk. And he said, Well, I mean, the Christian books, those have to go. The, the Bible... I can't tell you to take it off, but if you actually expect to go anywhere in the organization, you're really going to have to take it off the desk. That's the world we live in today. It's when your kids call you old-fashioned. You know, they quickly dismiss, oh, that's just grandma and grandpa whenever they talk about Jesus. You know, just old-fashioned, that old-time religion. You know, those are hard moments, but in those moments, that's where our true loyalty is shown. And remember who's speaking, right? This is Peter, the one who even when warned by Jesus himself on three separate occasions would feel the shame of the gospel and would not stand up for it. 
he's writing it as one who himself intimately knows that sting of rejection. He knows the embarrassment. He very much felt the cost. And yet Peter knows the sting of the world's rejection will be nothing like the sting of being rejected by Christ. He knows that sting, whatever, whatever we may face by the world, right, as we follow Christ, whatever rejection we face from the world, that will be nothing like the rejection and the sting of Christ. Don't be ashamed, he says. Don't be ashamed, but praise God. Glorify him that you bear that name. For in bearing the name of Christ, he says these Christians are actually blessed with the spirit of Christ. Verse 14, if you are insulted, you are blessed. Why does he say that? For, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In the midst of persecution, Peter reminds them, not only do they have this future hope of glory, but they very much have the present promise of the Holy Spirit to guide them in the midst of their suffering. Now the presence of the Holy Spirit for these believers, a presence that was promised by Jesus to the first disciples and to the believers, that doesn't mean we miraculously become the most skilled apologists of the age. It doesn't mean if you speak up and try to share a true word about Christ, right, that that you're never going to stumble over your words, right, or that you'll never put it well, you may just not put it always in the, in the best or the most winsome way. We're not promised to be perfect apologists. It doesn't, it doesn't promise us we're always going to get the responses that we want. But it does mean that through the Spirit, God intends us to have the boldness to speak the truth with power and clarity and trust that as we do, God will accomplish His purposes. You know, sometimes when we speak the truth and we share the gospel and we don't get the response we deserve, we assume God's not accomplishing his purposes as if we can always see what those purposes will be, as if we can always see the fruit of that sharing, as if sometimes the fruit of our sharing, well, sometimes God purposes is not to bring about the salvation of some. We thought of that earlier in First Peter 2. It's the story of the apostles in Acts. I love Acts 5.41. The apostles, they leave the Sanhedrin. They've just been rejected. Some have been beat. But they leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. For the name of Christ. Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. It's the story of Armando Valadares. He was a prisoner in Fidel Castro's regime for over 20 years. And in his memoirs, he was there as a prisoner. He wasn't a Christian at first. But in his memoirs, he tells of how he came to trust in that name. And it's through hearing the cries of persecuted Christians That's how he came to faith, hearing the faithful cries of persecuted Christians and those who stood firm unto the end. He said in his memoirs, those cries of those executed patriots, those cries of long live Christ the King, down with communism, those cries had awakened me to new life. The cries became such a a portent and a stirring symbol within the prison camp that by 1963, the men condemned to death, they had to be gagged before they were carried down to be shot because the jailers had come to fear those shouts, those shouts of long live Christ the King. So don't be ashamed. He's saying, don't be ashamed, but with the blessing of the Spirit, praise God that you bear that name. What name? The name above every name. The name to which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the one name. That's the one name we should never be ashamed to call our own. So successful suffering It's not surprised. He said that's one key. Don't be surprised. Don't be ashamed, secondly. He says a third thing, though. He says successful suffering perseveres. 
and God's purifying purposes. Right? So a third exhortation, persevere in God's purifying purposes. You know, I remember the very first Christian sermon uh, that I heard on suffering. And I think I was, I remember it so because it's not necessarily what you expect to hear in a Christian church. And I think I was also struck because I'd been a Christian for quite a while before I ever heard this sermon, which is in some respects a sad commentary on the state of our churches. If we're not hearing about it as the Bible talks to us about it, thus we're not going to be prepared, right, when suffering comes. But I remember the preacher's exhortation, and his whole message was, don't ask why, ask what. That was the whole message. Don't ask why, ask what. Not why God is this happening, but what God am I to do about it? What God am I to do about it? And at one level, we have to say that's absolutely fine counsel, even biblical counsel. I mean, the book of Job is a stirring reminder that having an answer to the question why is not a prerequisite for faithfulness amidst terrible suffering. But you need to know the Bible doesn't leave us without any reasons. It doesn't leave us without any reasons. Just look back to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And then he tells them why. He gives them a purpose. comes upon you to test you. To test you. And now with that word trial, right, that image of a fire, we're hearing echoes of 1 Peter 1, 6-8. There, if you remember, Peter wrote, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why have they been grieved by these trials? Purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, is that image of fire again, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what Peter's doing is he's drawing upon rich biblical imagery of how God uses trials. He uses trials in the life of his people not to destroy them, but actually to purify them. Not to destroy them, but to purify them. It's Psalm 66.10. For you, God, tested us. You tested us. You refined us like silver. We actually read of that. If you remember when J.J. read in the corporate scripture reading, uh, from Malachi 3, earlier in the service. There in Malachi, the Lord comes to the temple to both purify his people, right? He comes to purify his people, right? A refiner's fire, a fuller's soap. He purifies his people and, as well, he judges the ungodly. And so Peter says in 2.17 and 18 that God will use sufferings similarly, both to purify his people, his church, right, the new temple of God, and also to judge the ungodly. All right, so Christian, what does all this mean? It means we have to see suffering as God's pruning work in our own lives. It's his pruning work in our own lives. And that pruning work, if you've been subject to it, you know that can be a harmful, or at least it feels painful, it's difficult. And it's because the image of God in us, it's been marred by sin. As God prunes us, what he's doing is he's, he's cutting off that which is dead, that which is impaired about us. Our former lives, all of those false loves, those idols, he's cutting out in that pruning work. He's cutting off the old self. And he's beginning now, even now, to recreate in us the new man. And his pruning work, all that work, it's not meant to destroy, right? It's meant to save. It's meant to make us more and more into Christ's image and in his likeness. It's not to be avoided, but it's to be patiently endured, for only God knows best how to prepare us for glory. I think one pastor put it well. He said, glory, he said, glory doesn't precede afflictions. He said, glory follows afflictions. It follows afflictions, not as the day follows the night, but as the spring follows the winter. For as the winter prepares the earth for the spring, so do afflictions sanctified prepare the soul for glory. So do afflictions sanctified prepare the soul for glory. 
But I think understanding our sufferings as God's pruning, sort of purifying presence, I think that helps us in another way. Because when we suffer as Christians, we're tempted to think, right, God is distant. He's far off. We thought about that back in chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. God is, God's no longer with us. He's detached. He's removed. He's not concerned about us. We can't rely on him anymore. That's what we assume when we suffer. But Peter's saying, Remember, he's saying, no, he said, you've got it all backwards. Your sufferings are not a sign of God's absence. They're a sign of his purifying presence in your life. That's how Peter's encouraging them to see their sufferings for following Christ. They're not a sign of God's absence, but his purifying presence in their life. It's how we know we're his sons, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. And as surely... As surely as God puts his children in the furnace, right? he will be in the furnace with them. As surely as God puts us in that furnace of affliction, he will be in the furnace with us. But he says those sufferings, they do a third thing. They remind us of those sufferings and the severity of those sufferings to come. What's to come? That's what Peter's getting at in 4, 17 and 18. He's saying that suffering is not merely a harbinger of the judgment to come, as it is so much the very beginning of that judgment. That fire of judgment that will come already burns in the sufferings that Christians endure. In other words, the, the, and it's a sobering thought, our present sufferings for Christ are but the preliminary sort of plumes of smoke before the volcano of God's wrath and judgment erupts. And Christian, you need to see this as both a warning and as an encouragement. It's a warning so that on, the, on that day, on that day of God's judgment, you'll neither be surprised nor ashamed, but prepared to meet the Lord. So see that as a warning. But it's an encouragement because it means the sufferings of this life, they're already coming to a close. Suffering even now is ending. Even now it's ending, though the fruits, the purifying fruits of that suffering, those will continue on for eternity. I love the a poem from a 17th century Christian. He wrote, Oh, what a blessed day that will be when I shall stand on the shore and look back on the raging seas that I have safely passed, when I shall review my pains and my sorrows, my fears and my tears, and then possess the glory which was the end of all. Right, that's the Christian's perspective. Looking back, looking back over those fears and tears, the sorrows and the sufferings, and yet on the other side recognizing that was part of what brought about the glory that was the end of it all. That's the Christian's perspective as we face sufferings in this life. But if you've come this morning, you're not a Christian. Peter's giving you a warning. He's saying those same fires that purify God's saints those same fires will consume his adversaries. Second Peter says there will come a day, and who knows when that day is, but it's a day, he says, that will come soon when the earth will be destroyed by fire and everything will be laid bare. And he'll say that God's delay, his delay to bring about that day is not because he is slow to keep his promise, but because he's a patient God. He's a God who desires that none would perish, but that all would come to believe and trust and repent. So if you've come and you're not a Christian, my friend, I just implore you, do not presume on the patience of the Lord. Don't presume on his patience. At any moment, God could come. That volcano could erupt. You need to prepare yourself now by turning to Jesus. In Him alone, you can find forgiveness of sins. In Jesus alone, there is rescue for your soul. He is a kind and a tender-hearted shepherd. You cannot go wrong with Jesus. You absolutely cannot. But His wrath is terrible and it is unrelenting. 
for those who persist in rebellion and sin, not because he's cruel, but because he's just and because he's living, loving. And like any loving and just government, think of the government of Paris this week. It is a loving and just government because it seeks to protect its people and it goes after unrighteousness. It persecutes it. Jesus is the same way. God is the same way. He will bring about justice to all who are bent on harm and destruction. So I implore you to turn to him and look to him. Look to Christ in faith. So what does it look like then to suffer successfully? Peter's saying, listen, don't be surprised and don't be ashamed. He calls him rather to persevere in God's purifying purposes. But where do we get the strength? Right? Where do we get the strength to do this? This is all great stuff. But where's the strength to accomplish and to suffer like this? Because it's hard. It can feel like brutal and punishing work. So where does Peter get the strength to do this? Because Peter's not writing about suffering abstractly. He's not penning this in some suite or some penthouse. Right? In Second Peter, Jesus, uh, rather, Peter knows that his martyrdom is around the corner. He knows his suffering is only going to increase. So how does Peter have the strength to write such things? Well, he summarizes it there in verse 19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Right? We remain faithful. We get the strength to be and to remain faithful as we look to our faithful creator. He's the creator of all. He's reminding us again, there is no suffering that befalls a Christian that is not part of God's will. That same power at work in creation, the creation of the universe, that power that's at work in our salvation, that same power is going to uphold us and sustain us by the work of his spirit to see that we make it unto the end. He's the faithful one, which means we will never, not a soul here will undergo any suffering that God will not equip you to bear up underneath. We're to commit ourselves to him. And yet we recognize we often fail. We do, don't we? We, we fail to suffer well. We do get ashamed. Peter failed. We've already thought of, he failed spectacularly denying Christ in his greatest hour of need. We may do the same. So what do we do? We look to the only one. We look to the only one who has suffered successfully. We look to him who on the cross cried out, Father, into your hands I commit. We are to commit our souls to the Lord. We're to entrust them to him. Jesus did the same. I commit my spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus is the only one for whom suffering was never a surprise. It was never a mark of shame. Rather, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Only Christ has conquered suffering through his own suffering on the cross. And so it's by participating in the sufferings of Christ in this life, by participating in those sufferings, that we escape the sufferings in the next. We joyfully look to him as we suffer for him. Made righteous by him. We together suffer as the righteous with him. Right? For we all, every one of us suffers in this life. And for some, that suffering, it's God's purifying work in their lives. And yet for others, such suffering is but a terrible foretaste of what's to come. At the end of it, only Jesus can make our suffering successful. So how will you suffer? How will you suffer? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray. And we pray that we would be those who would not be ashamed. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would have a perspective of eternity of the glory that far outweighs the sufferings of this life, that we would delight to bear your name, and that together we would encourage one another to hold fast and to remain faithful. Lord, strengthen us, not as we trust in our own might and our own wisdom and our own strength, 
but strengthen us as we gather strength by the Spirit looking to Christ who committed His own soul to you and entrusted Himself to a faithful Creator while doing good. Lord, may we do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, if you hadn't noticed already, uh, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper here to close our time together this morning. Uh, As we celebrate it, we recognize that though this supper is simple in form, though it is, we recognize that this supper reflects the sufferings of our Lord, the one whose body was broken, the one whose blood was spilt, so that we might receive forgiveness of sins and be brought into fellowship with Him and know new life in Christ. So if you are a member of this church, or if you're a baptized member of another evangelical church in good standing there, a church that preaches the same gospel as you've heard preached here, then we would welcome you to take the Lord's Supper with us this morning. But if you're, if you're not a Christian, or for any reason you feel uncomfortable, you feel like it may not be appropriate, uh, don't be in any way embarrassed by that. We don't come forward to receive the elements. They're going to be passed out. At that moment, just let those elements pass by and use that time, use this time to reflect upon some of the things you've heard in the message to make use of the time in that way. And just a note for those who um, have celiac or gluten sensitivity, the bread is gluten-free. And those cups at the end, you are welcome with those cups. You can leave them in those little circular holes or on the way out. There will be baskets. You can drop them there on the way out. Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Well, as we prepare to partake, let's just take a moment now and I'll lead us in a prayer of confession. Let's pray. Fathers, we've thought about your word. We do confess this morning how unwilling often we are to suffer. How quick we are in our sufferings to charge you with wrongdoing. God, how dare you bring about this in my life? How quick we are to abandon you. Lord, because we don't finally value you. We don't finally value you as we ought to. We too much value the opinion of this world. Father, we confess we feel more shame sometimes for faithfully following you than we feel the shame of, of following our own sin. Father, we confess that we want so often, we want and we esteem pleasure much more so than character, that we, that we desire success. We pursue success and ignore suffering. Our hope is in an earthly reward. Our hope is not in that imperishable inheritance. Oh God, in these ways and so many more this week, even this morning, Lord, we have sinned against You we justly call down upon ourselves your wrath because you are good and because we are not. Lord, we know that to be true of ourselves. The gospel begins there. We thought of that. Father, we pray, though, that you would forgive us and you would cleanse us and you would cause us to hate our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.